0: Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener supported podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. Being an independent, or rather interdependent, media platform, which does not take corporate sponsors, we do need to meet our Patreon goal to be able to keep the show going. And I really know that if everyone listening to this backed us starting at just $2, it really adds up, makes a huge difference. For us, and we would be able to reach our goal in no time. So, to support the future of our people-powered show, you can head to patreon.com/slash/greendreamer. Also, we just relaunched our weekly newsletter. So, if you want the recommended resources and takeaways from our conversations sent to you, you can sign up at greendreamer.com. And now on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Alnor Lada.
1: Conservation is meaningless without changing. The structure of capitalism. No environmental work is contextually relevant if it is not creating or dismantling the existing superstructure.
0: Noor comes from a Sufi lineage. He writes about the crossroads of politics and spirituality in troubled times, and his work focuses on the intersection of political organizing, systems thinking, structural change, and narrative work. He was the co-founder and executive director of The Rules, and he's also a board member of Culture Hack Labs, a cooperatively run advisory for social movements and progressive organizations. If you enjoyed our recent episode with Dr. Bio Akomolafe, well, Alnor and Bio are actually good friends, and I think you'll be able to see why and pick up on the common threads in our conversations, even though they are on different subjects. So I'm excited for you to tune in, and we begin here as Ulnoar gives us a glimpse into the background context that makes him who he is today.
1: I always feel um, uncomfortable with the personal question, or the personal approach, not partly because it's you know a rebellion to the Western, Occidental. Ideas of what constitutes a person and this focus we have on like individual story, and, and it's just like a personal bias. I always feel very uninterested in, in personal story, and I know you know all the journalists and media communications people tell us, well, that's what people are interested in, but it's not necessarily what I'm interested in. So I'll, I'll keep it brief. My background is my parents are East African, my mom is from Zanzibar in Tanzania, my dad is Ugandan, he was exiled in 72 by Idi Amin and ended up in a refugee camp outside of Vienna for a couple of years and then randomly was shipped to Vancouver. And my mom uh, ended up as a midwife in the UK and then moved to Vancouver to work at a hospital there. And my parents met in the 70s in Vancouver. So I'm also a third culture kid like you. And that experience of being the child of immigrants in a highly colonized northern environment, but also an environment that was very multicultural and living in a multi-generational household with with grandparents and parents with deep trauma and exile and displacement and a feeling of not fitting in to, to the dominant culture definitely informed my, my politics. We come from a Sufi tribe and lineage, and so I was definitely deeply informed by by Sufism which is the mystical branch of Islam you know and I will just say like some of our first teachings on Sufism in in our oral tradition was that you know one of the first teachings is Allah or God is a metaphor for the universe becoming self-aware through you Mm. through us collectively which is why the whole identity thing is is so difficult right because In many mystical traditions, identity is the problem, right? The reification of self and preference and this limited small view and understanding of ourselves is sort of counter to, for example, one of the main mantras of Sufism is the confession of unity, which is la ilaha illallah, which literally means there is no God but God. But the esoteric interpretation is there is no energy except divine energy distributed equally amongst consciousness.
0: Hmm. So you often say that we are highly contextual beings. So this sort of speaks to, as you mentioned earlier, your disinterest in personal stories because you understand the self in a vastly different way than the dominant culture does. And so I guess, how does this reframing of the contextual being challenge the identity of the self and concept of individualism altogether? And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how In the realm of social justice, a lot of people focus a lot on identity and intersectionality as a way to address the injustices. So how does that sort of tie into our need to understand that the self needs to be contextualized?
1: Another kind of critical premise in in mystical thought and many indigenous traditions is the idea of non-dualistic thought. So these are seemingly conflictual ideas that are in fact simultaneously true. And so, of course, we've incarnated into individual bodies with particular histories and lineages and ancestry and genetics and epigenetics and trauma and all of that exists to create the the complex of beingness that is you or me. And simultaneously, we are highly contextual beings that are products of a social, cultural complex of norms, mores, historical precedents, organizing principles such as capitalism, colonialism, slavery, genocide, you know, all of the, the antecedents to this moment in time. And so in that sense, there, there is no paradox and it is a paradox. And so it's just how do we navigate Living in multiple simultaneous realities, and so we can be in contexts like the dominant culture, neoliberal culture, where the small s self is highly reified. Right, everywhere we go, what's your name? What do you do for a living? Where's your passport? Can I see your license? The preference porn of social media. Here's how I like my cappuccino, and this is my favorite color, and and that context creates a certain beingness which is the, the being of capitalist modernity, which is a, a sense of atomization, or, or can be, I guess, best described as, yeah, a sense of atomization, separation from the natural world, ennui, spiritual depression, and, and disconnection more broadly. And so that's one way to, to see what it is to be a human in a complex social environment. And there's infinite other ways to perceive our individual experience in the broader collective whole.
0: So given that the systems that we've created based on reductive understandings of the self and misguided understandings of our quote unquote human nature that I'd love for you to touch on as well. But Is it the case that our system sort of empowers and rewards those who actually have lost their ways and senses of wholeness and interdependence, and that it simultaneously marginalizes and deprives those who have a more holistic valuation of the diverse currencies of life beyond the symbolic monetary currency?
1: Yeah, definitely. I'd say, you know, part of like stepping back into the broader context is to understand how the operating system of late-stage capitalism works, right? So it's a complex, adaptive, evolutionary system. It's alive, not in the sense of an ecosystem being alive, but in the sense of artificial intelligence. So we've created this market system, we plug in certain rules, you know, money is debt, there's compound interest, so if you have capital, you can acquire exponential capital, if you have debt, exponential debt certain attributes are are valued uh, certain human characteristics so if you're a white male for example you're seen as the echelon of that hierarchy there's no sort of historical lens so part of the the sort of violence of 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 neoliberalism is this belief that people are you know individuals are pulling themselves up by the bootstraps as opposed to they are actually the beneficiaries and the heirs of the legacy of colonialism, imperialism, slavery, genocide, resource extraction, exploitation, dispossession, etc. And when we don't have a historical context and we over attribute benefiting from the market system as almost a sense of valor, then what happens is we reward those who best serve the logic of the system. Well, then the question is, what is the logic of the system? And you just have to look around us, right? It's short-termist, extractive, life-destroying. It rewards greed, psychosis, cannibalism, etc. And so the people who best serve its logic get pulled to the top. It's the opposite of a merit system. It's not that you work hard and you go to the right schools and somehow you'll be elevated in the system. It's like, how good of a servant are you to the logic of life-destroying capitalism?
0: There's often this binary of a good person or a bad person or you know, a hardworking person or a lazy person, but this idea that we have to recognize the larger systems that we exist as a part of really challenges those sort of individualistic judgments of the self because Mm -hmm. based on different contexts, it sort of brings out different parts of who we are. And in a greater system, it rewards people who are approaching life in different ways.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, I I would say like if we were going to draw a common denominator from 30 years of the social sciences, What what that common denominator essentially is, is that we are highly contextual beings. So we know, like, for example, the the famous Stanley Milgram experiments, right? Somebody in a white lab coat tells you to shock someone to the point of death. And because they're an authority figure, on average, most people are likely to do that. You know, even like the Good Samaritan studies, for example, right? Um, Somebody who's a theologian Who's about to give a talk about, or even like a moral philosopher giving a talk about good Samaritan, somebody who stops to take care of a hurt person. So this this moral concept is top of mind, and they just change one factor, usually time. So they'll get a phone call and say you're actually half an hour late instead of two hours early, and they rush to the lecture hall and they'll plant um, a bleeding person and most of the time they'll walk by that bleeding person even though they know the lesson you know and time is an illusion and who really cares if people are waiting in a lecture hall while you're helping somebody who could be having a life-threatening circumstance but we we just walk by them right and that that's what we mean by how context dependent we are and we know from behavioral economics and behavioral psychology that we have all sorts of biases so we think we're these like highly rational beings and in fact we're these highly contextualized biased beings who are operating from cues and signals and an incentive landscape in a broader system and um, you know when we were hunter-gatherers which we were for 99 percent of human history so This little, you know, five to twelve thousand year blip of of sedentary agrarian lifestyle and and modernity is this, you know, it's like a a sliver of time in 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 the human species. During that large period of time, as hunter gatherers, two hundred thousand years plus, we we know that we were living in small tribes and bands of about one hundred and fifty people. They were largely matriarchal. There was very little hierarchy social cohesion was key, that it didn't matter if you were, you know, the, the tribal leader or a lowly gatherer, you were roughly having about 2,000 calories a day, which is higher than at least 80% of the planet or 75% of the planet or something like that right now, that we were working 10 to 20 hours a week. And you know, Marshall Salins, the, the anthropologist calls this the original affluent society. And so it's not to say human beings are inherently good or bad but we're products of the contexts in which we embed ourselves and that we have agency and control and power through the creation and maintenance and and uh, refinement of culture
0: You've mentioned before that for you, it's really engaging and embarking on your political path that reactivated your spiritual path, which I think some people can have this impression that, you know, I need to take care of myself and do my inner work before I can have the capacity to give and engage with the outer and more tangible work. So can you talk more about your experience weaving the threads of politics and spirituality?
1: So th- there's this linear conception, right, that especially most apolitical or non political people have, which is, I'm going to do my inner work and then I will then proceed to helping others, right? And you know, this kind of messaging is, is articulated throughout the culture. You get on a plane and you know, you'll hear, use the oxygen mask for yourself, even if you have a young child beside you and, and, and all of that, right? And it, it it's part of kind of Capitalist modernity and the, the, this idea of the the self as the the unit of understanding reality and the self first and sequencing and all of that and actually what I, what I have noticed and what I've seen in people is that by engaging in the messiness of being a citizen, not just a consumer and in, engaging with the external world, it then reflects back the things you need to work on right there's this old buddhist line that says enlightenment doesn't happen in a cave it happens in the mouth of the lion so as you're getting you know chewed up and consumed and spat out like that's when your spiritual lessons are applied and Mm -hmm. it's not that useful to the world to have you know all these new age people and vipassana retreats and 40-day cleanses and whatever, whatever, if they're not coming back to apply those teachings to help create post-capitalist futures and adjacent possible realities. That's just spiritual narcissism. Right. And so it's not to say there's our way to do it, but it's th- this is a more, the spiritual and political praxis is a discursive process that is self-informing and self-reflexive. And the application of the spiritual work is accelerated by having a point of view on the current context, by knowing what you stand for and what you stand against, and actively trying to build those futures.
0: This really clarifies for me how troubling it is that we've seemingly created this split between the binary of the material and the spiritual. And even the definition of materialism is valuing the material over the spiritual which sort of frames them as mutually exclusive rather than than a call to reintegrate and make them whole again and i'd love for you to expand more upon the idea of how decontextualized spirituality might lose its deeper purpose, and also what it means to practice spirituality in context of greater traditions and cultures and community, while recognizing that a lot of the sacred texts guiding different forms of religion and spirituality were written in times that are also out of context with the present moment.
1: So I I think it really depends on what your tradition is, right? And like, so I come from a mystical tradition, which prejudices Gnostic experience and, and gnosis is like a direct relationship with wisdom a direct relationship with the divine and so it's it's not to say that we completely shed the past or discarded or, or or what have you it's just we're informed by the past as one omen you know my particular lineage like i grew up reading the quran and the hadiths of prophet muhammad and all of those things and I, I take them as one omen. And the fact that I chose to incarnate within an Islamic line perhaps means that I take some of those omens more seriously than I would with others. But I'm also really open to like what intuitively resonates with me. And so I have a lot of Taoist beliefs. I read a lot of Taoist literature because there's a lot of resonance in Taoism for me. And is it my quote unquote lineage? It, it's not, but if you're actually a Taoist, you don't even necessarily believe in lineage, right? Because the Tao similar to Allah and Sufism is the is consciousness itself becoming self-aware. And mm-hmm. so it, it, it cannot be defined, it cannot be understood. And so if you're in a, a let's say a non-mystical tradition, a more institutional, rigid, religious form, it does become more difficult because now there's certain dogmas that are passed from generation to generation for whatever reason right it might have been really good knowledge 2000 years ago uh, it's a way to protect the cultural integrity of the tribe and and all of those things and then the the added layer of complexity is there's certain traditions that are very contextually relevant right i look at indigenous traditions that have this unbroken you know, 10,000 year, 20,000 year, occasionally direct line to the wisdom of place. And their tradition has the, the intelligence and wisdom of, of place-based knowledge integrated into it. They have a relationship with the local deities and local gods and understand the multi layers of reality that uh, the plant kingdom or the mineral kingdom or the animal kingdom is speaking to them. And that is very relevant right? And then I look at the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions that have become more calcified. And when I read their texts or see their practices, I don't find them personally that relevant. And mm-hmm. and I also see people who find ways to reinterpret them in relevant ways. I see what, you know, let's say the renewal branch of Judaism is doing or certain aspects of Kabbalah or revised sort of Christian Gnostic paths. And and, and I think that. Like, if, if you see God as something outside of you that is ever-present and static, then tradition has more hold on you than if you see God as something being born through consciousness itself, as uh, you know, God is waiting for us to create it. Yeah. And that maybe even the concept of God is a product of desert myths in a certain time and in a certain way. And that if we avail ourselves to what divine emergence may be, that we may walk away from all tradition that we've been previously taught. And at least personally, I want to keep myself open to that possibility.
0: All of this has been about spirituality that might be absent of the context of the material realities. And there's also the flip side of this, which is when a lot of activists focus on trying to seek material changes for beings that are very much struggling with oppression and deprivation today, but have not allowed that to reflect back into their deeper spiritual work. So how might a lack of spiritual practice for activists sort of set the stage for us to become more easily co-opted or go off track, being seduced by the same sorts of rewards from the system that we want to move away from?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, you know, we just have to look around this, right? And we're seeing it now. So, so, you know, for basically for the left, you know, God died in the 1800s, right? And when Nietzsche declared, his famous statement, and, and Marx, for example, was deeply influenced by Nietzsche and Hegel and other materialists. And so what, what's happened with the left also, if we can even call the left the left anymore, whatever that means, right, um, progressive struggles, let's say, is that there, there's this desire and appeal for their overlords' approval. And so they want to fight rationality with rationality and logic with logic and all of a sudden the you know we look at the climate movement for example and it's enormous failure over the last 40 years and it's a direct result of this limited materialist rationalist need to win arguments and debates that are not not that they're not rational they're, they're, these are transrational dimensions and aspects of collective discourse And then, you know, we look at what's happening with the new age community, for example, or uh, other types of sort of emerging spirituality, or even traditional spiritual impulses and institutional religions. And there's very little political understanding or contextual understanding. And so there's this strange chasm between those who have a deeper understanding of co-evolution and becoming and multiple layers of reality and mystical truths, et cetera, and have had embodied experiences of these things that have sort of elevated their state of consciousness with people who are doing the important essential work of being activists, right? That we are all on a daily basis benefit from the the struggles of people who have worked in anti-slavery movements and anti-apartheid movements and feminist movements and anti-abolitionist movements etc abolitionist movements so you know these two worlds somehow need to come together if if our political work is not informed by a deep love of nature of reality of the world as becoming as the universe as becoming then we degrade into the state we are now which is identity politics cancel culture, pronoun police, the reification of identity, the uh, increase of separation. And, we, you know, we're seeing the effects of it all around us. And a dear friend that I know uh, you have interviewed on the show, uh, Bio Akoma he often says to, to activists, part of the crisis is the way we are responding to the crisis as activists. We think we're the solution, but we're actually contributing to it. And it's also true for philanthropy. It's also true for the NGO industrial complex. It's definitely true for social entrepreneurship and you know conscious capitalism and that whole murky world of emotional alibis and, and rationalizations and capitalist apologisms. So like, w- what we're seeing is people are starting to understand that we are being initiated into non-dualistic thought. That the inner work and the outer work and the inner structures and the outer structures are fractals of each other. They're mirroring each other. That the reality we want to see in the external world is not going to be manifested if our daily reality is hierarchy and separation and anger and violence. Mm.
0: And I would love to expand more on the NGO piece. So within the environmental movement, when people recognize a need to go beyond individualistic activism, a lot of people are called to turn towards supporting the major environmental organizations who many believe to be the ones best equipped to lead The greater movement towards collective and systemic change. But through your experience in this space and observation of how the nonprofit industrial complex fits into our current economic and political system, how do some of the major environmental nonprofits actually play a role in upholding the current capitalistic system that we have, and may therefore act as barriers for us to move past this and create the deep transformations that so many are yearning for?
1: You know, I, I think actually even before the NGO industrial complex is the philanthropic industrial complex, right? Philanthropy is an externalization of capitalism. A few people have amassed so much wealth, they've written the rules, the not-profit 501c3 rules, for example, in the U.S., and they are determining the agenda for civil society. And the, the way the structure of that system works is so nefarious. If, if most people understood how the philanthropic sector works, they would be in in shock and awe and aghast, right? And so what what ends up happening is the rich people set up these foundations, they put whatever, let's say $100 million into a foundation or a billion dollars into a foundation, their only requirement is to give 5% of that money. And so they put that endowment into equity markets and fossil fuels and destruction of the planet and they get their five eight ten twelve percent return so their power keeps on growing and they get then a tax break on their direct income their personal income from that five percent so they're financially benefiting from it and then with that five percent they're controlling civil society and then the ngos they're just downstream from that so Mm. how do ngos get funded they're all getting funded by foundations and philanthropy maybe some government funding which is not so much better because the difference between corporate power and government power is not separable now. It's a, it's a government-corporate nexus that is, is, is dominating traditional halls of power. And so the job of the NGO is to appeal to the all-powerful philanthropist who is never going to challenge the system. Never gonna, there no, I don't know many environmental organizations that are saying climate change is created by capitalism. Even though it's irrefutable, it's the truth. It's just a basic starting point for good public discourse about what do we do if we have a fossil fuel-based extractive system that's spewing carbon into the atmosphere, externalizing all costs, acidifying oceans, destroying ecosystems, biosphere collapse, et cetera, all for the profit motive, right? That's what's happening. And no one's talking about that, right? They're talking about reducing carbon in the atmosphere or whatever their particular issue is. Let's conserve oceans. Let's conserve this species. It's like, Conservation is meaningless without changing the structure of capitalism. No environmental work is contextually relevant if it is not creating or dismantling the existing superstructure.
0: Yeah, not to mention the simple substitution for quote-unquote renewable energy. That's a whole other huge topic. (laughs)
1: Right, and then you have basically these, these NGO workers who are getting paid high salaries, very comfortable positions, whose main job it is to appease funders, whose main job it is to just become more rich, right? Because that's the system rewards that psychosis. The person who's a billionaire who wants to double their wealth is seen as ambitious and entrepreneurial instead of uh, a hoarder and sick. And then those are the people who determine the agenda for those NGOs. And And the reality is that these people are not interested in building post capitalist infrastructure they're interested in being as comfortable as they can for as long as they can although they know the science they know intuitively as well what's coming down the pipeline for us as a species and they're just doing what they can to survive right you know we we can see that we can have compassion for that and see that as, you know, everyone is trying to survive in the midst of capitalist modernity and the end of time. And you can also see it as like, I wouldn't choose that archetypal role as, as, or a way to spend my time personally when, you know, we may be the last humans left or our children may be the last humans left, right? That, that's a very real possibility in this current context and we are not shifting the trajectory of that in any way we're we're making it worse on a daily basis
0: yeah i've often struggled with what it means for us that most philanthropies are at the same time investing their dollars in upholding the current system whether it's the fossil fuel industry or big finance the major corporations and so forth and then at the same time funneling a little bit of that money to supporting the work that is at the surface working against the powers that need to be dismantled, but that they at the same time are supporting. So it's sort of like embedding us further into the status quo rather than truly, truly supporting us to shift away from it. Because if they truly were interested in that, they would be supporting things that sort of would cannibalize themselves to eventually render them obsolete. And
1: completely. And most that's, of not them their, aren't, that's not their, yeah. that's not their aim. That's not their perspective. Like, right. they, 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 like, like, because they call it philanthropy, which means love of humanity, that's just doublespeak. They're mm-hmm. they structured, the, the existence of philanthropy created by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, et cetera, was created to control civil society, to amass more wealth and more power. That's its role, right? right. And the role of the NGO industrial complex is to be the, you know, prophylactic, to maintain the existing system. Mm-hmm. That's its job. Right and, and as is the job of social entrepreneurship, it's to make people feel better about what they're doing in the midst of the destruction and to find their seat to maintain their comfort in the midst of what's going down right now.
0: Right. And so through the NGO industrial complex, the North Star that's often pinpointed as the goal that we should work towards is what for example, the United Nations and other nonprofits will call, quote unquote, sustainable development. And the idea of development, of course, is closely aligned with the idea of growth and progress. And so I wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on whether we might have innate desires for growth and development and progress that have just been hijacked and disoriented to serve the growth and progress of a system that is disconnected from our collective well-being. Because I can see how Growth and development could be life-enhancing if we oriented them towards things like intimacy, vitality, spirituality, and diversity.
1: Exactly. Well, I, I think we have to understand that the whole concept of international development and, and aid, for example, comes from both sort of deep colonial structures and Christian missionary structures. So it is, it's essentially a white European colonizing belief that other human beings are less than human and we therefore have to develop them into our vision and understanding of what it is to be human. That's its root. Mm. And the United Nations and the World Bank and the IMF and the other organs of neoliberal extraction and control come from post-World War II, post-Bretton Woods understanding of how we develop the world in our image, how we grow the global economy so the West can continue its colonial and neocolonial pillage without sacrificing anything, essentially. And, and, and that's what they mean by, by that. And by growth, they're not talking about growth of the spirit or growth of biodiversity <laughs> or growth of intimacy. They're talking about economic growth. And if 93 cents or 94 cents of every dollar ends up in the hands of the top 1%, of course, they're going to have no other incentive scheme except to grow the global economy because it's hardwired to benefit them. You know? yeah. And, and, and that's, that's what's going on. And, and also, even the notion of progress, right? This comes from Western European enlightenment logic, right? That was this strange confluence of evolutionary thought that human beings were the sort of peak of the species on this planet, that we are the apex of evolution, that time is an arrow, that time is linear. And so therefore, everything we do must be the best it's ever been, right? And this is the Bill Gates, Steven Pinker arguments of, well, there's a microwave in every house and, you know, they'll doctor the numbers to make it seem like poverty is decreasing. And it's like, well, you're so deeply incentivized to believe that as, white males who are the heirs and beneficiaries of this current system we may have a microwave in every house but 200 species a day are going extinct and uh we're in the midst of the sixth great extinction and we have you know 60 harvests of livable topsoil left like uh, what what are you measuring and why and for whom does it benefit like those questions never get asked and and the double speak of, of progress and growth and the UN is somehow a benefit to human beings. The the UN is just an organ of the state government nexus, amassing more power and trickling down a little bit of aid and charity to be a prophylactic and a band-aid over the destruction the Western way of life and globalized industrialism is having on the rest of the world. That that's all it is. And it gives Uh, a few thousand people jobs that make them feel important at cocktail parties with other one-percenters and people who don't know better.
0: So much to to question. As we're closing off our main discussion, you've said before that we're going from a human-centric to an omni-centric universe, and what it's allowing us to do is to also see the interconnected nature of all of our problems, end quote. What does this mean? And through this recognition, if the dominant guiding vision of, quote unquote, sustainable development needs to be challenged and reoriented, what do you feel that our earth whole is calling us towards right now? And what does this mean for our listeners in terms of deeper inquiries that they can be invited to sit with or calls to action you would like them to engage with?
1: It's a big question. And, you know, it's... It, it may be the question for which we incarnated for, on one level at least. At a, I think there's maybe three levels that we could approach this, right? At, at an individual level, what is being asked of us is to dissolve our identities and our egos and to decondition and decolonize our heart, mind, body, soul complexes from the psychosis of 5,000 years of totalitarian agriculture, hierarchy, patriarchy, white supremacy, separation from the natural world, and separation from each other. And that is the work of a lifetime, and there aren't many left. So it's imminent, and that inner work needs to happen now by any means necessary, whether that's psychedelics in a container that respect, respects those traditions and the plant teachers and is is holistic and not frivolous and not consumptive it also requires us working at a community level building new neural nets and being in the practice of what it is to be a citizen of our times to be good students of our culture to understand the impoverishment and the sickness and the psychosis of what this way of living has done to us, and as a community to start becoming aware of the consequences of our actions, and to really spend time in contemplation and dialogue and discourse with other human beings, whether they're from our same socioeconomic racial groups or ideally more diverse groups to to really understand what it is to have the experience of being in another body and how capitalism has treated that those particular bodies, indigenous bodies, black bodies, brown bodies, female bodies, marginalized bodies of all kinds. And to, to do also that decolonization work in, in community format. Because without understanding that, and without doing that decolonization work, the new post-capitalist infrastructure, whatever you want to call it, the new ancient emerging frameworks, are going to replicate the hierarchy and the patriarchy and the separation and the violence. And so we we have to be in deep contemplation about how the superstructure is working, how the oxygen is affecting our lungs, and then be committed to disidentifying from that dominant system. And rebuilding new and ancient systems that are imbued with these values, we can call them post-capitalist values, but in some ways they're universal values of empathy, of altruism, of solidarity with life, with interbeing, with intimacy, with connection, with nonviolence. And and then also the third level, so it would be individual community and superstructure, is to actively integrate our internal work with changing external structures and systems, to opt out of state-based capitalism, to bring in new rules at a global level, you know, even short-term gaps like a universal basic income or a social income for indigenous peoples or activists, for shorter work weeks, for degrowth economics, for cooperative ownership structures, for land commons and land back movements and, and stewardship of land rather than ownership of land of, of mutual aid networks. There, there's a there's a, a, a plethora of post-capitalist alternatives that already exist. And, and by supporting those, by actively challenging our governments, by withdrawing support from the neoliberal state government complex, that itself is a deep spiritual act and is also required. And those are just, th- you know, three. And I'm sure there's, you know, multiple levels of energetic spiritual investment that could be made in reimagining and creating these adjacent possible futures that we want to live and see in our lifetime.
0: What is a publication you follow or a book that's been very profound for you?
1: I, I at any given time, it just, it really depends. Um, I, I'm not so loyal to to, to publications, but uh, a, a book that's had a huge influence on me is Columbus and Other Cannibals by Jack D. Forbes, one of the great First Nations thinkers in the U.S. It was his last book before he passed. He was kind of one of the leaders of, in the, um, Native American movement in the 60s and 70s in the US and Turtle Island. That book is profound in, in understanding Wetiko, in understanding the disease of cannibalism that is capitalism, that is this sort of distributed fascism when we all just take care of our own little self interest and, and backyard. Uh, I, I think the work of Hakeem Bey as a kind of mystical anarchist, it, it, that's, that was his, his pen name, but temporary autonomous zone and immediatism. Are two books that that come to mind that are powerful and profound and and also a lot of Sufi poetry has had a big influence on me the work of Rabia from Basra the eighth century um, Sufi mystic and and Hafez and uh, Omar Khayyam and and others in that vein have definitely had big influences on me and then and then also a lot of modern uh, feminist post humanist thinkers like Karen Barad. I think meeting the universe halfway is kind of required reading, at least the first chapter. The work of Donna Haraway, of Anna Singh, uh, of the kind of whole movement of radical feminist thinkers in that vein, for sure, has been has been very uh, powerful. Uh, and, and also a lot of anarchist literature, the work of, of Gustave Landaway and Kropotkin and Proudhon and, and other sort of Radicals of the eighteenth and nineteenth century, the kind of uh, Europeans who rebelled from from the dominant system, uh, I mm. always find informative. And then a lot of mystical writers as well, like uh, especially in a German tradition, Hermann Hess's Glass beat Game is one of my favorite books of all time, and 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 Rilke, the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke, and Thomas Mann as well. And, and also, the last one I I have to say is Albert Camus uh, is a patron saint of mine. And The Myth of Sisyphus, I also think, is a high sutra and, and required reading.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to dive into the wealth of resources that you just shared. What personal mottos or personal practices do you engage with to stay grounded?
1: Yeah, the, I, mm, the idea of mottos, I, I don't know. Maybe like mantra would be more... Um, mm-hmm. More apt, I guess. Um, I I would say there's a there's a powerful uh, Sufi proverb that I I sit with, which is um, you are entrusted with everything and entitled to nothing, and Mm -hmm. it's attributed to the Great Mother saying that to her children, to us, you are entrusted with everything and entitled to nothing. I, I see entitlement as the the kind of dominant core wound of of the occidental culture and the occidental mind. And and maybe it's in a trinity with in its entitlement, victimhood, and control. You know, that's the kind of holy trinity of capitalist modernity. And it manifests as victim perpetrator and savior. Hmm. And so I try to contemplate why I feel entitled to anything, you know, and just really contemplate the sheer consequence of what it is to be a privileged person in a dying planet? Like, why do I feel entitled to 2000 calories a day? And what does that, just even contemplating the sheer amount of work that's required, you know, the fossil fuels, the globalized supply chain, just to prop up one Western life and uh, who got to decide that?
0: And um, what has been some of your greatest inspirations in the recent times?
1: the sort of rise in social movements that are expressing uh, this sort of like interconnected nature of our struggle. So whether it's Occupy Wall Street or La Via Campesina, the peasant farmer movement, or Ekta parishad the landless people's movement in India or MST in Brazil or Standing Rock, or Extinction Rebellion, or Fridays for the Future. You know, th- these are white blood cells, right? They're expressions that the system is not working for the majority of the planet, for majority of humans, for, for life itself. And that it doesn't matter if you're working on a pipeline in North Dakota or land rights in India, the root of it is a globalized, extractive, capitalist system rooted in values of separation, of otherness, of hierarchy, of patriarchy, of white supremacy, and that as these movements slowly come together and start seeing how there's a constellational worldview holding these things together and, and also activate their spiritual traditions and their lineages uh, and their, their deeper practices, that there is possibility on the horizon for, for something more than the Elon Musk, Bill Gates version of the world or the colonization of Mars. And really rooting ourselves, and 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 the, the resurgence of indigenous cultures as well that are remind us that we will not be given another planet for the pillage and destruction of this one.
0: Hmm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close. But to learn more and stay updated on Alnor's work with Culture Hack, their website is culturehack.io, and you can also follow Alnor on Twitter at Alnor Lada. Alnor, thank you so much for joining me today. There's so much still that I'm going to marinate on, so I really appreciate it. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Hmm. I'd say be good students of the culture. Th- that we spend so much time in the world of self-help, and if we spent a commensurate amount of time in understanding how the global economic system is destroying the potentiality of life and destroying biodiversity and destroying our souls, uh, we'd be in a better position to act that um, if any part of us still wants what the dominant culture is selling on tap, if we still want that Wikipedia page and to be a famous author and to make certain amount of money or to have that house or that car or whatever, we are not contextually relevant beings. We are not in service to the unfolding that's happening if we are still enmeshed in the incentive system of a life-destroying structure. And that takes practice. It it takes rewiring our desires in in what we've been programmed to believe. It takes deep decolonization, and it requires the expansion of empathy. So the circle of life goes beyond ourselves or our community, but is engaged in a living planet and a broader omnicentric cosmos.
0: This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support our community-powered show to continue starting at just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Also, if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Grandmother's Song from Hand Drum Songs provided to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.